Please turn to chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 1 to 11 this morning. I feel like we should have all the decorations back up for this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region... There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. May God add understanding to his word this morning. Good morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. I pray that you would even provide to us this spirit and attitude of thankfulness that you command us to come to you with. We so quickly forget your goodness. We forget your past provision. We forget the joy of our salvation. We forget your faithfulness to our people for generations. Lord, I pray that you, by your spirit, would bring us to true thanksgiving this morning as we come to honor you. For only if your spirit so empowers us can we worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the good news that we are here to celebrate this morning. And we thank you for the people of God that you have made us a part of through your blood. Lord, we lift up our church to you this morning. Many are away visiting family, we suppose, and other places. God, we pray that you would be with them as you are with us and that you would continue to bind us together. Pray that you would give them safety in their travels, and those here who are going. Father, thank you for a wonderful time to be able to share with others, celebrating your incarnation, that you came to be with us and to be one of us so that you might save us. Lord, I pray that our worship can continue as we look at your word this morning. We ask this for the sake of your glory. Amen. Well, we have a Christmas text in front of us this morning. The plan this morning was supposed to be finishing up chapter 31 of Genesis, but as I was praying and contemplating the final touches on uh, the Genesis sermon yesterday, a very 
different message began to coalesce and come together in my mind, a Christmas message. Now, if you know me, you know I don't love preparing topical sermons, and I often do whatever I can to avoid them, even when they're necessary. In what has become the modern Christmas season, I like to give others an opportunity to preach so that I can then continue with whatever book of the Bible we're working on. This year, I had Pastor Kurt from Grace Bible Church come to preach before Christmas, and he didn't even do a Christmas message at all. He went straight to the heart of the gospel in Romans. And then on Boxing Day, Leighton boldly took us further through 1 Peter. And so we haven't had a Christmas message yet this year. Uh, but thankfully, we are still in the second week of the Christmas season, according to the ancient calendar. So we have a Christmas message this morning. This, this year, my family and I at Christmas were confronted with a different gospel than what we celebrate daily here. And, and while I have been aware for years that this progressive teaching has existed amongst those who call themselves believers, I was shocked to see it come to affect my own family. And so I have prepared the message I needed to contemplate this morning, the message I believe my family needed to hear in response to such a different gospel, the message I hope will equip you for when you find yourself in the same sort of situation, the message of the gospel that we are here to celebrate this morning. What is being challenged today is the content of the gospel, the good news, which is, is frequently, all too often, assumed in Christian circles. But it is vitally important that we understand it explicitly so that we may believe in the gospel, Mark 1.15, truthfully preach the gospel, 2 Timothy 4.2, and obey the gospel, Romans 10.16. The gospel, Romans 1.16, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And it is therefore of first importance, primary importance, to correctly identify this body of truth. Remember, it is not believing that Jesus existed by which we are saved. It is believing Jesus, believing his message, the good news of the gospel. Now, the gospel is not a simple thing. The first four books of the New Testament are referred to as gospels or the gospel according to, etc., because this is the way the earliest author defined his own writing, Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the good news, then, pertains to everything regarding the life of Jesus Christ. So the gospel is not simple. It is everything regarding Jesus. And because all Scripture points to and finds its fulfillment in Jesus, Luke 24, 44, our understanding of the gospel is formed through the study and preaching uh, from the entirety of the biblical text. And so anytime we are in the Bible looking at what the Bible teaches us about Jesus, we are talking about the gospel. So it's not a simple thing. 
But the gospel is also presented in simple ways, such as it is here by the angel of the Lord in Luke 2.10. We're just focusing in on Luke 2.10 and 11 this morning. Good news, which is the same word everywhere else translated gospel, the angel preaches good news, gospel of great joy that will be for all the people. And so we get in 2.10 the announcement that this is the gospel, the good news. Now in the content of that good news, Luke 2.11 is this. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is our announcement of good news, a simple announcement of good news from the angel of the Lord who announced the gospel of great joy to poor shepherds and the content of that news was a birth announcement. A Savior who is both Christ and Lord. Now, this entire statement was politically loaded in Luke's content. Context, sorry. Uh, the gospel was a common word in Roman propaganda. The Roman Empire was taking over all the other countries around and basically running the world. And in order to uh, invite people to be, become part of the Roman Empire willingly or to keep them from rebelling against the Roman Empire, they began to preach, I, and this, I, these are their terms, I'm not making this up, they began to preach the gospel, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They began to announce everywhere the peace and prosperity that Roman rule brings. And so the gospel, the good news, was a word that described the rule of a good king and his victory on behalf of his people. And so when you would hear the good news from far off that your king had won a war on behalf of your people, this was the good news, the gospel. And when there was an announcement of a good king who brought peace and prosperity, this was the gospel, the good news. News. In fact, even our word evangelist comes from this word gospel, evangelion, the, the, uh, the preaching of good news. And so this is politically loaded because now everything that Rome is teaching about the gospel that brings peace and prosperity, the Bible begins to teach something very different and opposite to the world's message of where peace and prosperity comes from. Now, in our context, in Luke 2, why we read from verse 1 is that the sovereign who decreed a census was Caesar Augustus. Born Octavian, he was granted this title, Augustus, which smacks of divinity. It means majestic and holy. And, and he reigned with unrivaled supremacy until his death in AD 14. This was the Caesar who ruled in Rome when Jesus was born. And Augustus was the first emperor to encourage a cult to deify his own name and his father's name. And an inscription dated to 9 BC hails Augustus as a god 
whose birthday signaled the beginning of good news, the gospel for the world. Other inscriptions identify Augustus as God, son of God and Savior, and his rule was associated with peace and hope and prosperity and, you guessed it, good news. So Caesar Augustus postured as a Savior who inaugurated a new and propitious age of peace, order, and prosperity, fulfilling the longings of humanity. So when the angel announces good news of great joy for all the people, this is a serious contradiction to the governmental narrative. Now the angel's gospel announcement identifies the newborn Jesus by three titles, all which contradict the claims of Augustus. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Christ, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah. We'll look at that further. And he is Lord. Now, the second two actually appear first in the Greek where word order is more fluid in sentence structure. And they're connected as an opposition. So he is Messiah Lord. He's not Messiah and Lord. It's like Messiah hyphen Lord. And this is the only time this opposition occurs. It's almost like it makes these two words one word. Jesus is a Savior who is Messiah Lord. Now, Messiah means God's anointed king from the line of David. So when we say that Jesus, when we say Jesus Christ, it isn't that uh, Christ is Jesus' last name. Uh, We are saying that Jesus is the prophesied heir of King David, who was anointed by God to sit on his throne for all eternity. So this is a loaded term. He is Messiah. It's not enough to say that Christ means king, as some do. Luke 23, 2 uses both titles in tandem. Christ is the rightful Davidic king of humanity's throne forever. The second of these connected titles, Lord, is the standard Greek translation of the Hebrew name for God which is written Y-H-W-H. We guess that it says Yahweh. So this word Lord is the, the standard term for Yahweh in the New Testament and in the Greek Old Testament. And the way these titles are written actually makes it impossible to misunderstand this to say that Jesus is the Messiah of the Lord. In no uncertain terms, the angel announces that Jesus is the Messiah who is the Lord. God comes to save. The Savior is not Caesar. The Savior is not the systems of this world. The Savior is God. Now, these first titles are far more exalting than the final title, which can be used of a person uh, readily throughout the Bible. And it comes first in an English sentence, Jesus is a Savior. He's a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And in English, we can't, re- we can't reverse them. That's how our sentence structure works. So he is a Savior who is Christ and Lord. Now, each of these titles for Jesus has come under attack through history. Some have denied that Jesus is God. 
Others have denied that Jesus was truly human, the biological heir to David's throne as humanity's rightful king. But today in an age where talking about sin is taboo, never mind talking about sin resulting in God's judgment, we've begun to see an attack on what it means that Jesus is the Savior. It's all well and good to highlight that Jesus being Messiah and Lord is good news. Christ is King. But with this has come an element uh, who have begun to remove or forget what it means that Jesus is the Savior. The atonement achieved by the shedding of his blood on our behalf as central to the gospel message. And this is what I would like to look at topically for a few minutes this morning. As with any of the themes that span the entire Bible, there are so many passages we could look at to talk about the atonement. That is, the reconciliation of God and humanity through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, because I am most familiar with the gospel according to John, having preached through it in recent years, I, w- I want to turn there first as we begin to unpack the atoning work of Christ Jesus, the Savior. Now, John's gospel doesn't begin with a birth story, likely because he was well aware of other writers who had covered that element. John begins, as Genesis does, in the beginning, with God creating all things. But but for John, it's important that his audience understand that Jesus was not only the Messiah of the Lord, but that he himself was Lord, or is Lord, John 1.3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, other writers, Matthew especially, had gone to great lengths to make it clear that Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed son of King David, Uh, So John then spends a great deal of his writing space making it clear that Jesus was the Passover lamb. Now, John's gospel shares a great deal of imagery with another of his writings, the Revelation. In fact, there is so much crossover that I believe the vision John received from Jesus as described in Revelation is what caused him to see all of these connections to the Passover lamb in the life of Jesus as he walked with his disciples. In Revelation, John saw Jesus as a lamb standing, though previously it had been slain. The lamb possessed all power and authority in heaven and on earth, but even more than that, through the lamb's accomplishments, he was worthy to open the scroll of God's righteous decree of judgment for his enemies and salvation for those he had preserved to be his own people. And so heaven worships the lamb as he takes the scroll, Revelations 5, 9 to 10, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
And having seen in a vision this lamb who was slain, John then is the only eyewitness to take up this lamb imagery in the writing of his gospel when he remembers John the Baptist, John 1.29, when he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb who was slain but stands in the heavenly throne room. Now, we need to understand that it's not from, like, out of nowhere that John introduces this Lamb imagery in both writings. In Genesis 22, we see God require the life of Abraham's son. He doesn't give any reason why. He's God, and we deserve death, and so God commands death for Isaac. And then he supplies, Genesis 22, 8, a sacrificial lamb in his stead. Now, it makes it clear in this narrative, in Genesis 22, that the sacrifice was not only on behalf half of his child, but in his place. For it says, Genesis twenty-two thirteen, Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. This is what we call a substitution. And while there are many ways of speaking about the gospel, Jesus ransomed a people for himself. He redeemed slaves to sin. He adopted us into his own family. The common theme that goes throughout the whole Bible is this theme of substitution in our place. If there's one thing we learn through the Old Testament uh, of the tracking the history of God's people is that no number of second chances would ever get them there. God could be patient for generations and hundreds and thousands of years, and never would they really come to the point of obedience. You discipline them and then bring them back and discipline them. They, they never could get it. We couldn't do it. No number of wiping the slate, no amount of times of, of getting a second chance would ever get us to salvation. We needed someone in our place, someone to stand in our stead, to win the battle on our behalf. And so Jesus is the lamb who was slain. He's also the lamb who is our substitute. Now, the Passover celebration began after the Exodus when the Lord made a distinction between the Israelites and their Egyptian oppressors by commanding the Israelites to kill a spotless lamb without blemish and apply its blood to the doorposts and lintel of their houses. Exodus 12 12 to 14, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. I want to pause there for a second before we read this. Who is going to go through Egypt and kill all of these people? God. Do you know I looked up the term angel of death and couldn't find it in the Bible? God goes through Egypt, and he is executing his judgment in wrath upon the oppressors of his people, but who also is threatened as God comes through the land? Israel. They would not come through a meeting with the holy God unscathed as sinners themselves, and so God gives them a hope in this. 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. I love that. I love when God just says the whole explanation for everything he's going to do is because he's God. I am the Lord. This blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast." And so each year at Passover, fathers would go out with their children and select a suitable lamb, one without a spot or blemish, which would be sacrificed on the altar in the temple and then eaten by the family along with a feast. But this would also take place at the birth of each firstborn in Israel, among both men and animals. The firstborn animals would become sacrifices to God, but the firstborn son would be replaced with a lamb. And this drama would elicit questions from the children, Exodus 13, 14 to 50, 15, sorry, we're not going to read 14 to 50. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? Okay, so there's something happening, and the children are going to ask questions. Why are we going to kill that lamb instead of me? What does this mean? You shall say to him, by the strong hand, by a strong hand, sorry, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Again, these are passages that Jesus taught us pointed to him. He is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. It is also quite clear that his sacrifice is in our place. A death is required. Not because God is bloodthirsty, he's just not super excited about blood. Blood's what really makes him happy. But because he is just. The first of God's righteous commands to humanity carried a death sentence for disobedience. Death eternal is the only righteous judgment for sin. As Romans 6.23 puts it, sin pays death in wages. Now, a lamb could no more pay the price of a man's sin than they could be considered a suitable replacement for a son. But all of the drama of sacrifice pointed to the one suitable sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ, Hebrews 10, 12, offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. Again, this is not because God likes blood so much, but because of his unassailable justice. In love, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God became as one who had sinned, 2 Corinthians 5.21, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In speaking of this necessary sacrifice of Jesus, the Messiah, 
The prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53, and we're just going to read just a part of it. You go home and read all of Isaiah 53. It's fantastic. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus died for our sins and in our place. And this is how he became known as Savior. The announcement of good news, the gospel at Christmas, is not only that a king was born or that a Messiah had come, but that Messiah God had come to save those who once lived in rebellion against his rule who rightly deserved the punishment that Jesus bore in our stead. Our sins, our iniquities were put on him. He died in our place. And so this, among other things, is central to the gospel. And there are those today who would like to remove the atonement from the gospel because talking about sin is inconvenient in the first place. And certainly, if there is such a thing as atonement, well, it couldn't possibly be central to the gospel because then we'd have to talk about it all the time. And so, there are some who are heretically say there's no atonement and others who are so wrong-headed as to say that the atonement is not central to the gospel. So, I want to show you this in closing. Don't, don't get too excited. It's, but this is central to the gospel. You, now, challenge me on this. Come to me if you, you think you can find one, but I cannot find one clear mention of the contents of the gospel in all of Scripture that does not mention the atoning sacrifice of Messiah God. I couldn't. I, I tried. I could not find a single one. And, and, and I was confronted with this other gospel that said, well, the, the atoning work of Jesus is not part of the gospel. Well, I'm like, What? The gospel is that Jesus is, is king. That's fantastic news. It's not good news for me. I'm a rebel to his will. It's a terrible news. Jesus rules. That's not good news for us sinners. I don't know about you. I need a savior. Stands in my place. Pays the, the punishment I deserve. And grants me his inheritance that I do not. So the first time the gospel's preached by the apostles, after, so that after the, this first time the gospel's preached after Jesus dies and resurrects, he's found in Acts 2, Acts 2.36. And the first time that the apostles preached the gospel empowered by the Holy Spirit, they say, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. See how this has the exact same content as the gospel message of the angel? He is what? He is Christ, Messiah. He is God. 
And he is Savior. Savior, how? He was crucified. See, these same key components are there. He's crucified and yet is alive. Both the second and third time the gospel is ever preached, after uh, in Acts 3, uh, where a crippled man is healed at the temple, and then again in Acts 4, uh, we'll read Acts 4, 10 to 12. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing well before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the first three times in Acts, the gospel is preached by the Spirit-empowered apostles. What do they want to talk about? The death and resurrection of Jesus to save sinners. Every time the Apostle Paul writes of the contents of the gospel, he includes the death and resurrection of Jesus because that is what makes the gospel good news for sinners. God himself saves. Christ died for sinners. This is the clearest in that Paul uses the phrases Jesus Christ and him crucified and the word of the cross as shorthand for the gospel, which was his only message to the church in Corinth. So when he's talking about the gospel, he doesn't always call it the gospel. Sometimes he just calls the gospel the word of the cross, or Christ and him crucified. For example, 1 Corinthians 2.2, he said, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, earlier, Paul says that he only came to preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to 18. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Remember Romans 1, 16? The gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. And then Paul says, the word of the cross, it's folly to those who are perishing. It's not central to their message. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross. The, uh, Christ and him crucified. The word of the cross is the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah God, Jesus Christ. Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul will remind us specifically of the gospel content and the central message. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So what is the power unto salvation? The gospel. Is this the gospel that Paul's about to tell us about? Absolutely. It's the gospel that saves. He says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. I ask you, church, 
Is the death and resurrection of Jesus central to the gospel message? How can they deny it? Let me remind you of the gospel I preach to you, of first importance. Christ died, was buried, and raised with all of the weight of biblical prophecy behind it. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.8, he writes, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. He also wrote earlier, 2 Timothy 1, 8-10, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has become manifest through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The content of the gospel is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who is clearly the Passover Lamb and is also in John's gospel, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And finally, as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper here together this morning, we are given a symbology by which to remember the work of Jesus. And what is the church to gather around every time we are together with the believing community? What is the table that we gather around? What is our remembrance Luke 22, 19 to 20, in Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We are here this morning to celebrate the new covenant in Jesus' blood. Why is Jesus' blood such good news? Because he died and is alive again. Messiah God came down, became our king, and saved us so that we might live in his righteousness. And our remembrance as the church, as dictated by our Lord and Master, is to remember him by the elements of his body and blood given for us so that we might be saved and so that Christ is king might actually be good news to we who were the enemies of God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to receive freely and empty-handed at your table, I pray that you would impress upon us the love that you have shown us in Christ Jesus. I pray that our celebration, this 
second Sunday of Christmas would be focused around the covenant that you have granted us, a covenant that is not reliant on us and our obedience, a covenant that is not reliant on whether we live in your rule, but a covenant based on your blood, a covenant you could complete both ends of, both as God and as man, so that we could have right relationship with you despite everything that we have done. We thank you, God, that it is a transformative work, that no one who receives this salvation will stay the same, that we will begin to live in your rule and recognize your authority. But thank you that when we could not accomplish that on our own, you accomplished the good news on our behalf. So that it was good news that first Christmas day when the angel announced a miraculous birth, a Savior who was both the King and God. Prepare us to receive what you have done this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.